yeah, of course, because this is how it starts. So, hey, everybody, welcome back to Insignificant Figures. I'm Dr. Abby Cohen. I'm joined by my good buddy, Paul Baker, PhD candidate, and Joshua Beal. Is it right? It's Beal? Beal, yes. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I'm just going to, I think I kind of have to throw Taylor under the bus. I talked to her about this. I was like, how do you pronounce it? Is it Bell or Beal? It's Beal. Okay, confirmed. That is the right is. way to say it. Uh, yeah. We're so pleased to have Dr. Beal with us this week. I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to you, Josh, to have you introduce like the work that you do. Because uh, for me and Paul, this is a pretty big divergence off of what we know and understand. So no one better to introduce yourself than you. Sure. So um, my, uh, my education, I have my undergraduate master's and PhD in criminology. Um, I was trained under a social psychologist in a sociology and criminology department. And so it's a, a very interdisciplinary department and, and I kind of am a very interdisciplinary person because of that training. My research broadly looks at legal decision-making. And so legal decision-making um, can be kind of, at least the research I do, can kind of be broken down into uh, two different categories. I look at witness behavior, specifically alibi witness behavior, willingness for potential alibi corroborators to serve as alibi corroborators, factors that influence alibi believability or your ability to generate an alibi. And then I also look at jury decision-making. Uh, most of my um, more recent research and jury work has been about um, damage award decision-making and factors that influence um, jurors' willingness to give kind of high or low um, damage awards. So that's kind of broadly what a reason. I have done a little bit of theoretical stuff um, recently in my time and I uh, that that stuff is kind of a newer kind of research line that I'm starting. That's awesome. Very cool. And you wrote a book recently too, right? Maybe I, so I, I wrote a, a theory textbook recently that I use in my classes. And then we actually, uh, my co-editor and I, Dr. Megan Kinsley at Austin P State University in Tennessee have an edited volume on alibi corroboration that is coming out next month by Springer. So we're very excited about that too. What? That is so cool. I had no idea. Oh my God. Now I need to read this. I'm not going to understand <laughs> I think that. they're great. So, yeah. <laughs> So what brings you to the podcast today? We're going to be talking about insignificant figures. Talk to us. That, did you have any projects that were terminated due to insignificant data? I I guess, I, depending on how you look at terminated, <laughs> um, my, my dissertation, actually, I had no results for basically the entirety of my dissertation. I was trying to um, develop a scale that could be useful for attorneys during voir dire or the jury selection process that would be able to identify high damage award jurors versus low damage award jurors to kind of help guide the jury selection process. And it was not particularly uh, <laughs> strong in terms of uh, the scale development because, I mean, jury damage awards are just, there are so many factors that go into predicting damage awards. There are no general personality factors that suggest one person is more likely to um, offer high damage awards versus others. What was interesting, I suppose, about that insignificance, though, was there had been some research earlier that had suggested there might be some attitudes that were predictive of it, but it mm -hmm. seems as though a lot of attitudinal ideas we have in society are pretty temporal in nature, and so they're very time-sensitive to certain time periods and then uh -huh. those attitudes may no longer be relevant so the project wasn't terminated but my dissertation is certainly not published anywhere <laughs> because oh my gosh 
you said the entire dissertation process. So was there any conversation along the line with you and your advisor of saying, maybe we should pivot at all? Or is it, was that even brought up? So, so I am uh, very, very fortunate. I have been very, very fortunate. My advisor, um, Dr. Laura Levitt at the University of Florida, always suggested that the data was the data, that, that there's, it is what it is. The, the purpose of a dissertation, the purpose of research is to try and answer a question. And whatever the answer is to that question is what the answer is. And so there's no real, um, it's not a sign of bad research. It's not a sign of anything if you get insignificant data. And in fact, if you are actively trying to find significant data, that might actually be a sign of you doing questionable research practices in order to get to that significant data. Oh, heck yeah. That's like basically what the whole podcast is about. Like we can't just be searching for significant data and only publish that. Like the insignificant things are just as valuable. And like you finding that there wasn't significance between, I I don't even know if I comprehend what you looked at, but I know that there wasn't any significance. That's a good thing because you found like a contradiction to what had been previously published and that allows people to like oh maybe we need to revisit this is there actually a difference and it's not a bad thing but why isn't it published why didn't you publish the dissertation um i i may have if if i kind of reworked quite a bit of the intro and the discussion sections and lit review sections of the paper i may have been able to successfully get it published someplace it was just one of those things that like by the time I was done with the dissertation and got it all finished, I kind of moved off of it a little bit to look at some kind of more practical data because I do some work and I guess I could have mentioned this in my bio also, I do some work as a trial consultant. And so I kind of have a foot in academia and a foot in the uh, applied world. And I wanted to kind of pivot my research agenda to be more practical to, to my kind of private practice stuff yeah, so that I could... So I, it was basically once I found out that, that it was a, not a path worth really pursuing, I kind of also abandoned it. Okay. Um, the, it. It is interesting to contradict other people, but one of the things also, and I don't know how often this is the case in your field, but in social sciences, if we have a significant p-value, that's important. But we, we also – we kind of ignore, but we shouldn't, the r-squared values, so the effect size of the significant yeah, relationship. Yeah. And, and a lot of the scales, once I found my insignificant data, when I started looking at some of the R squared values for some of the other scales that were predictive, they were predicting one, maybe 2% of the variance of damage award decision-making anyway. And so it then became like, even if I found significant data, does it really matter if it's only affecting one or 2% of the variance? So I, I kind of decided to pursue other interests at that point. Okay. I mean, that makes sense. So I guess this ties in then pretty well with the next question that we have for you, because we briefly touched on it. But what do you think the role of insignificant data is? Is it actually something insignificant? And and does it contribute to the fuller story in a way that you didn't expect? And I think you briefly touched on it, but could you elaborate a little bit more? Yeah, I I think that insignificant data can be important. Mm -hmm. But also, and so um, I, I was at a conference one time and my advisor's advisor, um, her name is uh, Dr. Covera, Margaret uh, Covera up at John Jay. She was um, the editor of one of our premier journals in legal psychology. And, mm-hmm. and she made the comment once, just because something can be manipulated doesn't mean something should be manipulated. And that she often gets data that even has significant results 
but it's just not an interesting research question. And so I think that, that, and this is where kind of, I think the context of the whole research process really matters is insignificant data can be really important if you're asking a really interesting question, or if you are combating something that has long, longly been held as a belief in our field. So example, in, in criminology, right, there was a, a long time belief that eyewitness confidence was related to eyewitness accuracy. If someone looks you in the eye and says, I know for a fact that's the person who committed the crime, there was a belief that they must really be true because look how confident they are. How could someone be that confident yeah, and be wrong? Yeah. Research started to show that there's actually no relationship between confidence and accuracy at all. That's important in significant findings because that, and it's been a paradigm shift in the whole criminal justice system because we don't rely on confidence as a predictor in eyewitness identification nearly as much as we used to. And in mm -hmm. fact, a lot of states have outlawed in court, that's the person I saw do it kind of identifications because they're so prejudicial. Yeah. And so I think that in the greater context, insignificant data can be very, very important. I think that part of the conversation needs to be also, is the research question that we're even asking to begin with an important research question? And is the importance of the research question what needs to be published regardless of what the outcome is? That's a really good way to put it. Completely agree. I just had a side question when you were talking about that. How long before these kind of research findings, significant or insignificant, get kind of translated into the courtroom? What do you see in terms? You talked about that transition of what they yeah, accept. It, it it takes quite a while. Um, our our system because our system is based on precedent. The system in general really likes to look back at how have we done this before, because that must have been the right way to do it, mm -hmm. at least to have some level of consistency across the board in our system. We don't mm -hmm. want an arbitrary system. We don't like a lot of randomness in our system. So let's just keep making the same decisions. So it takes quite a bit of work. The APA, American Psychological Association, um, uh, does actually quite a good job of – there's a whole amicus brief or friend of the court brief um, – section of APA where they, they have a task force that just recommends court issues that the court should be aware of or psychological issues that the court should be aware of. And they tackle issues like eyewitness misidentification, confession issues. The APA actually was very pivotal, pivotal in desegregating schools because they showed that segregation actually caused more mental health issues in students wow. um, and desegregated areas. And so they, they actively work to try and overcome that but they need a, a big enough body of research to present to the court for the court to believe it. One or two articles is not enough for the court to just accept as true something okay. that the community says. So, and this is, you know, I, I don't know a lot about the field of research that you're in. How frequently is someone like you doing research? How, how often are you doing experiments and what, what do those look like for you? So it, the, the range of what an experiment looks like, I'll start with the second question, I guess, okay. <laughs> um, it can, can vary greatly. And so it depends on kind of the, the research question, right? And, and my advisor has also stressed to me, and I firmly believe this also, that 
the research question should drive the method. You shouldn't look for a method that you like and then try and find questions that fit into it. And so, um, for example, for my master's thesis, it was on alibi corroboration and someone's willingness to serve as an alibi. And so we would do a simulated party setting where in the middle of this party, we would shut the project down and say, hey, someone stole a, an iPhone off of a professor's desk upstairs. We're going to ask everyone. We think we know who did it. We're just going to ask them to serve as an alibi corroborator. And so that was a fairly involved research project. I've done other research where I've looked at how witnesses answer questions on the witness stand and to see if answering in a complete sentence versus an incomplete sentence affects witness credibility. Mm-hmm. And that could be an easy online kind of trial transcript, just have participants online read a trial transcript and just do a basic credibility rating of the witness whether they answer in complete or incomplete sentences. And so the kind of methodological approach to the research can vary greatly because of the cumbersomeness of some projects. You might only be working on that one project. Um, If you do a lot of kind of the smaller online projects, it's not atypical for colleagues of mine to have two or three or four projects um, going at once. Wow. That's a lot more than I thought. I I guess I kind of thought this was maybe like niche or rare, but, there's a ton of research then going on. Wow. Yes. Yes. We, we, and I mean, legal psychology as a discipline is division for, it's a whole division of APA. That's its own kind of um, entity. And so we, uh, we have a conference every March that's solely dedicated to legal psych issues. And so we're, we're a, we're not the biggest by any stretch of imagination in APA, but um, we're a significant portion of, of APA, which we're happy with. Very nice. Do you feel like that significant insignificant data has affected your career? Do you ever think about that when you're publishing your articles or going into research in terms of career advancement and things along that line? I don't. So I'm in a unique position, I suppose, compared to um, some other folks that you've either talked to or probably going to talk to in the future, because I'm not at a, a school that has a pretty uh, heavy research focus. I'm at a, a small liberal arts um, college, and I actually. Um, starting in the fall, I'll actually be an associate professor there. I, I got promoted in February. And so I, I had no problem advancing um, to the next rank um, with, with the research that I've done. Um, I don't, I think that it, it would have potential to affect someone's career if they were having a hard time publishing their insignificant research, but in much the same vein, if you have a hard time publishing your significant research, it also is going to, to hurt your career, which I think is why going back to kind of what I said previously, it's so important to really dive into the literature and make sure you're developing really good sound research questions to begin with. And I think that, and this is probably going to zoom out to a broader kind of higher education issue is there's such a pressure to publish. It's better to do three small projects than it is to do one really big project. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that that's, a great thing for the general knowledge base in the world either. Yeah. Um, I have a question and it, I guess it goes kind of along in the same vein as like how your career is affected by like data or not, but what's like the grant situation for you? Do you have to have a grant in order to do these studies or, and is it human studies? Or I, well, yeah, they're human studies, right? What does that look like? Do you have to go through IRB? Do you have to get a grant? Like what, what does the, behind the scenes work look like for getting a project done? So it really kind of depends on the, um, well, first of all, the institution you're at, but also the resources Mm -hmm. of that institution. At Mm -hmm. the University of Florida, 
Um, one of the things, and I'm, if, if anyone um, after listening or y'all has ever taken like an intro to psych class or something, you probably had to do so many research credits for that intro to psych class. And so a lot of um, human subjects research in general relies on undergraduate samples. Now there's problems with undergraduate samples, but it, they tend to be, undergraduate samples tend to be nice because they're there. You can offer credit for your class to do it. And so it's, you can, you're able to publish easier. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to use a more generalizable sample, actually Amazon has a, a very popular kind of surveying tool called Mechanical Turk or MTurk. And, and you pay real participants out in the world to log online and fill out your surveys or watch your stimuli and, and mm -hmm. everything. That sometimes, I mean, it's not nearly as expensive as the, the research that y'all are doing. But then we also have NIH grants, DOJ, Department of Justice, National Institute of Health, um, National Science Foundation, all, all offer grants. Um, and in fact, a colleague of mine, I think, just got something like a $300,000 uh, grant from the Department of Justice. Um, wow. And, and a, a colleague of mine I went to graduate school with, she's at Portland State now, um, to, I believe, and I hope she doesn't listen to this because I don't 100% remember the details, but... Um, <laughs> I believe it's to uh, uh, Oregon just recently. I, I think Abby, you would know this. Uh, just recently decriminalized. I think all yeah drugs. Everything. So they're, yeah, they're looking at they're examining kind of police officers' role shift because we have a, mm -hmm. a kind of a natural experiment happening where we have like drug task forces at police departments that are now no longer going to be drug task forcing. And so, what is how does that affect the police function in in the state of Oregon? And so, she just got a. Yeah. a Department of Justice grant to, to study that. And so we have big grants that, and we have longitudinal grants that collect data over the course of, of decades um, with people who fall in through their life course in criminology. There's people who do research like that. And then we have very small kind of $5,000 grants that you can just, uh, I don't want to make it sound like bad research, still good quality research, but you can pay some participants on, on Amazon $15, $20 to take a survey and you can have your whole data collected in a couple of days. So oh, that is sick. I mean, I, that sounds like a pretty ideal research situation to me. Like I'd want to be able to just be like, Hey, fill out this thing real quick. Like that, uh, the instant kind of reward from that or being able to take care of your data so quickly seems like super nice. But I, you know, working with humans is like a completely other different or completely well, different topic, you know, it's and, hard. Yeah, and one, one of the things that a lot of those, like, especially like survey design sounds like it's like, oh my gosh, it's just a survey. But in order to validate and test and verify the results of the survey, mm -hmm. survey do reliability analyses, also pilot testing the survey to make sure you get mm -hmm. broad coverage of the topic. There's actually a lot more that goes into it to a survey also. And so that's why I said, I really don't want to minimize that, but yeah. the data collection process is actually very quick. Once you go through all the validation and everything else that needs to be done on the front end. And yeah. so you're, you're doing the work. One of the things I always tell students, they're like, well, what's the easiest? I'm like, you're doing a bunch of work either way. It just depends on what kind of work yeah. <laughs> you're going to do. Have you done some of the survey based research, Josh? Mm -hmm. Yes. How hard is it to not get a biased question in your survey? Come up. How, how much do you have to be careful about that? It's oh, it, it, it can be incredibly difficult because you and also it's not, it's not even biased question, but how you ask questions mm -hmm. can be very very difficult. So there's there's things like double barreled questioning. So if I if I were to say, um, do you like nutrition because you like food? 
right? It's like, well, how do mm-hmm. I answer that question if I really like nutrition, but it's not because I like food. I don't know how to answer that question. And so mm-hmm. you don't really know what your results are then because you're asking kind of two questions within the question. And so there's a lot of things about like question structure that become very, very important that, that people need to, to consider. Or if you said something like, don't you like Chinese food? It kind of is suggesting to people that you should say, yes, you like Chinese food. And so participants also, a lot of participants are actually really nice people that want to help you get the results that you want. And so mm-hmm. if, if you kind of telegraph stuff to them like that, they'll answer the way you want them to answer. But then it becomes problematic because you're not getting real answers. And right. so it's, it, and that's where validating the survey um, becomes very, very important also. And, and, and so it's, it's typically what we'll have like in my dissertation, because I was trying to develop a scale, I started off a survey with like 350 questions, then did some analyses to limit it and then asked the questions again, then some more analyses to limit it down to like step it down to like a 45 question scale. Whoa, from 300 to 45 questions? Yeah, it was, it was something like that. Christ. Yeah. Oh my God, that's a lot. What's a what's the sample size on a usual survey? Yeah, um, it, it it depends on what like how many variables are in the survey because all of the items should be loading presumably onto a variable of some sort. And so depending on how many variables you're trying to like if, if I were to ask you, do you like movies? It's like, well, that's so sufficiently broad. We need to figure out well what categories of movies are there, how do we kind of decide okay you definitely like romantic comedies but you don't like horror movies so to kind of it's it's a complicated question to to answer it it can be up to like a thousand eighteen hundred um it can be as few as 50 or 60 just depending on how many variables are in the survey wow very interesting this is speaking out loud but I, i always think of like you you read a paper with a survey in it you can kind of think maybe they didn't find anything because their survey wasn't asking the right questions or it wasn't designed properly. Have you ever seen that? Yes, very much so. I've, I've reviewed for journals um, and also even actually have had colleagues at, at my current institution and former institutions say, hey, I know you do uh, data analysis and surveys. I, I gave this survey to my class. Can you help me figure out the results of it? And, and it, even asking the question like, well, how do you are there theoretically defined variables here that we should group these questions together because you have to compute kind of like you know a a very basic example right like if you do a buzz feed quiz or whatever and it's like if you get 10 or more points you're an extrovert if you get you know less than 10 <laughs> yeah. you're an introvert you you still have to do actually that computation process um with the variables in your surveys and so i've had people come to me and say i've given this survey to my class can you help me analyze the data and they've had no idea how to do our, had no concept of variables within the items. So then we run each item individually, but then they don't like that because they think some items should be related to each other. But then we run the analyses they are not related to each other. And so it, it, it's one of those things that I think people think it's just a survey. Let me just write 10 questions and give it out to people. But then when it's time to analyze that survey, you've basically just wasted everyone's time because there's no way to analyze what, what they've actually asked people. Right. So I guess I had wanted to see, like, are you working? Do you have any experiments going on right now? Are you work? I know you can't like speak generally or anything, or you can speak generally, but are you working on, like, what does your current day look like? So I teaching at a primarily teaching institution at a liberal arts school. I teach four classes a semester, so a kind Mm -hmm. of a typical day is there's a lot of teaching and office hour element to my day. 
Mm-hmm. The, my colleague that I co-wrote the alibi book with, she and I are currently in the process of applying for a grant. It's going to be about a hundred thousand dollar grant um, through the Russell Sage Foundation to mm-hmm. look at alibi corroboration kind of issues. Like on the heels of our book being released, we, we also want to kind of ride that wave um, and keep that agenda going. And so we're in the process of writing that up. We have a couple projects that are done with data collection. We're just finalizing manuscripts to send out. So mm-hmm. I don't have any projects currently that I'm actively analyzing or collecting data on. Um, But that's kind of the nature of a 4-4 teaching load is you collect a bunch of data, work on writing it up and, and sending it out before you kind of add more stuff to the pipeline. You're, you're in what I would call like, uh, this is the sweet zone where you're just kind of working on like, let's get a whole bunch of this stuff ready and then we'll zip it out. Um, Follow-up question. Uh, and this is something I think that you had also wanted to talk about, but impact factor, are you like, what kind of role does impact factor play for you? So at at my institution in particular, we're not as worried about specific impact factor uh, because Mm -hmm. we're a teaching institution involving undergraduate students in our research is um, given a bigger weight. And and that includes publishing with undergraduates um, Mm -hmm. than than necessarily the impact factor of the journal. I know for a lot of my colleagues, impact factor plays a, a very big part in their promotion process. Yeah. Um, and so I think, and, and I think this is one of the problems um, that journals are trying to wrestle with is do papers with insignificant findings get cited? If they don't get cited, they're going to drag down the journal's impact factor. Mm-hmm. If, if that's the case, then the journal becomes less prestigious and they're, and that's bad for the journal. And so yeah. I think that that one of the kind of ways around navigating this could be, I know that some journals will offer commentaries or will offer kind of editorial notes and stuff, perhaps saying, here's a couple research questions that we've received that found insignificant data for more detailed descriptions see this commentary on them or whatever mm-hmm. um, might be a way to get more insignificant findings out there. Cause I, I do agree that if four people try follow up after me and say, look, I want to do a dissertation similar to what Josh did, that would be a waste of time, money and effort. Right. Because yeah, it's, it's seemingly not working all that well. However, I also understand from a journal editor's perspective, the journal editor is paid literally to represent the best interest of the journal to try and increase the journal's impact factor or at least maintain the journal's impact factor. There are some journals out there that don't even have impact factors. Yeah. And so it's, if, and and it's kind of this like self-fulfilling prophecy. If it's a journal that doesn't have an impact factor, no one wants to send their stuff there because they want their stuff to be cited because Mm -hmm. the more they're individually cited, their H index also goes up, Mm -hmm. which is their citation index. And so, Journals want articles that are going to get cited. Authors want articles published where other people will cite them also. Yeah. And and then it becomes this idea of how, what are the best articles? The best articles tend to be ones with significant data. Yeah. Right. Well, you're right. We haven't actually talked about H index on our podcast yet. So real quickly, do you want to walk us through what goes into an H index and then what goes into the impact factor of a journal and then how crucial that is in terms of overall academia. I can give you a very sophomoric understanding of H index. 
Yeah. So yeah, the, what I know about it is basically the number of times you are cited as an individual author, your H index goes up. I have no idea what the floor or the ceiling is for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that really big names, like if you were to think of like, you know, Freud or something or, or some really big names, uh, uh, Philip Zimbardo in psychology is another really big, uh, psychologist um mm-hmm. merton or sutherland in criminology they have very high impact factors because they have articles that have been published a hundred thousand times or something like that and so um that shows that you do meaningful work is the idea behind it is you do meaningful work so much that around the world you are known for your quality of research because everyone is reading your stuff Impact factor is is a little bit more straightforward, and it's basically the average number of times an article in that journal is cited. And so if you cite in Law and Human Behavior, which is our big journal in legal psych, I think the impact factor in that is somewhere between a three to a five. So on average, any random article in there, if you selected it, it will probably have been cited somewhere between three to five times. And so that indicates that people are reading the journal, number one, and not only reading the journal, but the research in there is relevant to other people's research because they keep going back to that journal to, to cite. Yeah. There are some journals, like I think science has like an impact factor of like 10 or something. And so, but that's also the journal of science. So yeah, I was going to say like new England journal of medicine and nature, like one of them is 50 and the other one's like 75, you know, it, it, they're ridiculously high. Whereas I think, for me, as far as like cell based experiments go, like we aim for impact factors of like 10 to 15, but then like some of my animal stuff will be in like a four to six. So is there like a scale that you're used to publishing in? Not, not like, I guess I'm in my head, I know what the scale is for like my area of science, but I'm trying to understand like what the scale is for yours. Really for, for us in social science and, and I I suppose I, I, I've never been an R1. So like, it seems as though somewhere between like three to five, three to six is pretty good impact factor for, for our journals. There's also, we have a lot of journals, um, and I'm sure every field has quite a few journals in it. I'm not oh, yeah. unique to us, but but behavioral science in general has just so many good journals that it kind of also dilutes the impact factor, which also becomes somewhat problematic. If you have three really good journals versus ten really good journals, obviously three is going to have a higher impact factor. And so there's also a degree of that happening where if if societies split or they form new journals and stuff that also will kind of delete down the impact factor some, but I know like an impact factor of a five in our field is considered very respectable. Um, It just kind of depends on the field and the specialty within the field. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, to publish in those big names, I mean, you've got to have what it's normally like clinical trials to publish in something like 50 or 75. If you want to get in a new England journal of medicine, you've got to have like thousands of people in your, uh, sample size, you know, it's uh, like ridiculous. I'm, I'm very happy hanging around my, my five to six range, just trying to get published in there. Like that's the sweet spot, but there's also a lot of journals that will publish insignificant data that have like, like you're saying, basically no impact factor, or it's so low that it seems not reputable, even though the science that they're publishing is good. So do you think that maybe the impact factor is kind of unfair to some of the data. I don't know if that's a 
Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I think that it, I think that the reliance on impact factor. So I, so I guess it's not to keep beating this horse, but I really think like we have perverse incentives either way we look at it. And a, mm -hmm. a perverse incentive is of course, a, it's a sociological idea that, you know, we don't want to incentivize bad behavior yeah. because the current system has the perverse incentive of find significance at all costs, right? If, if you have to make dummy variables that don't really measure what you want them to measure, do it in order to get significant data so you can publish your paper. I think that part of the problem that may enter into the equation if we start publishing insignificant data is that we might start seeing a bunch of projects that aren't necessarily all that interesting flooding academia because there's still that pressure to just get articles. Mm. And so I think that for, like, I don't know what the solution is. And so I, I, and I always hate being that person that's like, I'm identifying the problem, but not giving you a solution to it. <laughs> um, but it, I, I would be concerned if we started publishing insignificant data on a regular basis, that what might happen is like, for example, if we were to say, I did a research project that showed that inmates who participate in art programs are not better inmates than ones that don't participate in art programs. And someone else goes, well, what kind of art programs? I'm going to see what about ones who paint? What about ones who use watercolors? What about ones who use crayons? What about? And then all of a sudden we're replicating this with every form of art we can think of when we already really know it's probably not going to make much of a difference. Yeah. And so, but I've now got 15 pubs following this line of research that hasn't contributed a thing to the field. And so I think that if it's a truly good research question that's truly grounded in the research literature that is novel and unique and is giving us new knowledge, then yes, it should be published. Mm -hmm. I think that the problem is I don't know how much we, we say we incentivize those kinds of projects, but in reality also we say, and hopefully you're doing two of those a year. Yeah. And we care more if you do two of those a year than we care about how unique and novel and important it is. Yeah. So does leaving on that note, does leaving data unpublished waste taxpayer dollars? I think it certainly can. Um, I think it's also though, I guess it also depends on how you define published too, right? And so yeah. <laughs> most, most grant agencies do require you to provide some sort of report back to them. Of course, there's the issue that if NSF, National Science Foundation, publishes or gives you money for a grant, it's not a published grant. You submit the NSF report. I don't know how many people are going through and reading all those NSF reports. Not me. See. Yeah, I, as I say, I, I'm <laughs> sure most probably aren't. Maybe NSF won't publish research in that kind of area again, and so maybe they won't waste their money on it, but that doesn't mean that the National Institute of Health won't do it, or Department of Justice won't do it, or Department of Juvenile Justice, or whatever the case may be on, on the topic. And so mm -hmm. it, it definitely has potential to waste money and waste time. Um, but, and again, I just, I don't know what the solution is to yeah. that. I think what's important to note too, and, and you make a really good point in that we have to be asking interesting questions and that it should be published if it's an interesting question. And I guess the, the problem is like, if these uninteresting questions are getting funded, then we kind of have this recurring problem where things aren't getting published because it wasn't an interesting question to begin with. It shouldn't have been funded to begin with. And, and maybe that's where, kind of the future of science is going we have like 
to really pay attention to the questions that we're asking and designing studies that are, you know, I, I don't know if I would say flexible with the questions and the outcomes, but like we should be able to get something from them, right? Right. Does that make sense? Right. And, and, and I also think that at least in, in my field, at least, I don't know how easy this is for, for you guys, but we typically through reading the literature, we come up with a, an interesting research question. We then design the project based on that specific research question. I, I sometimes worry that people will throw the whole kitchen sink into a research project because not only can they get more money than on the grant, but also then they're like, well, something will pop as significant. But mm -hmm. then it's focused on too many things to where the, the methodological um, process isn't necessarily the best to fit one specific question because you're trying to have it fit 12 Mm -hmm. hoping to get something significant out of it also. And so I think we have to be careful about that also. But I still don't know. Again, I, I, I feel like I'm doing this thing that drives me crazy when people do it, <laughs> is is identifying problems without, without solutions. But it, it is, I mean, I personally, one of the things I love about being at a small liberal arts school is that there isn't this pressure to publish. And mm -hmm. so because of that, I can actually do the research I really want to do. Yeah. And I don't have this pressure to pump out a bunch of small stuff. And I can focus on the first edited volume or the first volume, the first book, scientific book ever written on alibi corroboration because I'm not bogged down with other things. Yeah. And so it's, I understand as, as much as a lot of people in, in higher ed would probably disagree with this phrasing. I understand the privilege I have at being at a small liberal arts where I don't have that pressure so I can focus on research questions that actually are interesting. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good point because here there's so much stress about getting significant findings. And like you mm -hmm. said, throwing the whole kitchen sink, it's, a, it's an idea I think I brought up last time, but people design these projects where they're like, okay, I think I'm going to find one thing significant here or there's some experimental ideas, but they always have that kind of one thing. And then, like you said, it, it floods the methodology and you kind of consider. So it's a really good point. Well, and, and there's also sometimes, and, and as much as I, I think we probably don't want to admit this necessarily, there's also the reality that the, sometimes there's a more expensive way to do something, which gets you more grant money, which also gets the college more indirect costs. So yeah, there's like an incentive yeah. for you to get a bigger grant also built into this. And so that's why I said the context of all this becomes very, very important because there's so yeah. many moving parts to this that it's a very interesting topic, but you know, you pull one, it's kind of like whack-a-mole. You hit one down and two other ones pop up and they got to figure out how to solve those too. Yeah. So I noticed you all did all your degrees at one university. And so one thing Abby and I have both heard, and I'm sure a lot of other people in academia has heard, that you shouldn't do all your degrees at one school. You should branch out. So what is your thoughts on that? And have you encountered any kind of like problems with that? Yeah, I, I don't I don't disagree with that. Um, I, I think that the unique thing about being at a big state school was most of my undergraduate courses were taught by graduate students. And so the idea of academic inbreeding was not really all that prevalent because I didn't really take hardly any classes with the PhDs there. Mm. I do think there's something to be said to getting exposed to different theoretical um, traditions and different methodological traditions, but I yeah. I would suggest that 
with technology the way it is today and the advent of, of electronic journals compared to 50 years ago where you had paper journals that you would have to flip through and stuff and you might get more of that exposure by having somebody else, that it's a little bit easier to get exposed to a wide variety of perspectives still staying at the same institution. I don't think one way is necessarily better than the other. Um, I'm not mad at people that want to go to different institutions. I think that that's totally acceptable. And, and if you stay at one place because you really like it, you get connected with great people. I think your work ultimately and the research you do will trump all of that anyway. Oh, heck yeah. I, I mean, I when I was at FSU for undergrad, I was in a completely different department than I did my grad work in. So even though I was at the same university, I was in a completely different area and got to learn so much more about, you know, you know, it was a completely different area of study. So I, I learned a lot more and I got to be around other people, even though it was within, you know, one centralized university. All right. Well, I, this is so fun to talk about. Josh, we're going to have to have you back on because I feel like there's a lot of things that I have to ask. Just one, to understand your science better, but two, because I think it's really important to get input from different areas of science on things that we have in common. And I think that insignific insignificant data is something that we all have in common. Uh, so huge thanks to you for being on with us. Really appreciate your time. And uh, we'll see you guys soon. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to come back whenever. Yay. <laughs> we'll <laughs> do it. a deep dive on H. Is it H factor? Yeah. Is it? Is it? H index. Okay. Yeah, H index. H index. We'll do it. Impact factor. We'll do a deep dive on the H. M no. H, H index. index and yeah. impact factor. <laughs> All right. Thanks again. We'll see you soon.